You're listening to the sensual sounds of Moon Butt and Whooping Cough. Coming to you from an apartment we pretend to co-own and a puppet who has feelings for you, you fuzzy crumpet, you. And welcome to the Amish Wax Blade Candle Warehouse. The perfect leg-licking session. The moral obligation. The The They Them Them Podcast. You took the deepest of breaths while I was saying the perfect leg. I hope you can hear it. <laughs> yeah. that definitely false started. You fuzzy crumpet, you. Sandy Whoopi cough, you cannot hear it. I'll have to throw a baby of a bridge and rage. Yeah, you, you <laughs> went, ready. you went. And then <laughs> Today's episode is sponsored by our dear friend and toothpaste connoisseur Barbara Hittenrun's new book, A Lesbian's Completely Unuseful Guide to Not Staring at a Hot Guy. Half memoir, half deep ocean scuba gear, this 300-page description of a hairy penis will be more than plenty to make the horniest. Immediately buy a ticket to the Bible Belt goodness of banjo Sunday mornings and gravy-stuffed bread mush, and stay there for the remainder of their now simpler, cleaner life. All pre-orders will be signed and stamped with her left boob. gonna make the bleep uh, banjo <laughs> yes i think the genesis of this episode comes from two different things one we we're interested in starting a type of book club slash just a more centralized idea for some of our episodes where we'll still have some episodes where we do some fucking weird shit and just have fun and try to make each other laugh while other episodes uh, are more centered around actual like queer thought and yeah cannibal shia labeouf and and stuff like that where where we Concentrate on fuck you. You you interrupted my train of thought. I was I was headed for the train station, and you you had to stop me at Shia LaBeouf. It was it was good. It was way better of an intro than I would have thought. Um, we're we're hoping to concentrate on what we're hoping for in a series of episodes that like we haven't really come up for a name for them yet or whatever, but this idea where we concentrate on queer thought, queer works of art, and other things of interest to us where we can read, listen to, watch, and then just have a conversation about. Mm-hmm. And the the main idea is also that you, the listener, don't necessarily have to have read, watched, listened to these things to enjoy and be a part of the conversation. Like, we're gonna kind of extrapolate the big ideas and ha- have a conversation and open it up to you guys to, to talk to us about it because these things are obviously things that are very important to us or that we struggle with. And especially today's episode is based off of an article by the queer theorist Jose Esteban Munoz uh, the, the title of it being Feeling Brown, Feeling Down Latina Affect, The Performativity of Race and The Depressive Position the second part was that at a party this past like Saturday we were 
all having like a conversation about like what type of tattoos we would like <laughs> and shit and i remember you being like oh you should get a feeling down feeling, feeling brown, brown tattoo, tattoo. <laughs> and and it comes back to this idea where i continuously uh, even i think it was last week yeah. Um, I didn't tell you about this, but I, I was online. I was on cost, customink.com mm-hmm. trying to figure out how to buy my own Feeling Brown, Feeling Down t-shirt. Like, just design it and stuff. And, like, it would just get here and I'd be like, hey, look Hello. at me. But the only issue is that, like, to buy a single t-shirt costs, like, 30 bucks or Holy something. Fuck. Yeah, Yeah, like, you need to have several people united to make to make sure that the price goes down on those t-shirts and it's it really pisses me off because like i want are white yeah (laughs) (laughs) it would be disrespectful (laughs) feeling half brown feeling down (laughs) feeling brown on the inside oh wait that's not okay Feeling, feeling brown. down, just scratch off the feeling brown. <laughs> feeling it could be a modification brown. of the same T-shirt on Fe- all our friends. Feeling half brown, feeling half down. <laughs> then it seems like a like a football T-shirt. Or it could be like Al just wearing like feeling brown, but also I look really white. <laughs> white people exist in Latin America. It's like <laughs> As whooping cough is a great example. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm white as fuck. Um, yeah, but but yeah, we were just talking about the idea of getting tattoos, and that for me, like that phrase that Jose Esteban Munoz came up with, like as soon as I read it the first time last semester when we were in the same queer theory class, I like latched onto it i fell in love hell it was, yeah it was um this, like uh, that whole class was like 20 of us looking at each other being like and then like you just being like <laughs> straight up in the air i want to talk about everything this is so good like like we were just like being like oh Sebastian got this one i guess we're all white <laughs> which to be fair most of us were there were a couple of us there were a couple of latinx people in yeah, the yeah, class. yeah 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 um, um, but and and a couple of them who are listener like active listeners of ours, so like, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> yeah, we don't we don't want to throw them out the window. No, 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 no. Yeah, but like this was one of the things that like Sebastian like I latched onto. Yeah, and... I I love it because even though there there are problems with it like there are problems with this theory and in a second we'll explain kind of what feeling brown and feeling down means uh especially to this essay the thing i love about it is that it it kind of quickly and beautifully summarizes my my existence of <laughs> Uh, like the problematic existence I have within white spaces of I am feeling down and I'm feeling brown and I am out of this norm uh, that is that is established within this space and it accentuates the down and brown while also trying to cover up the down and brown and it's 
it's this really interesting dynamic, which, which I think is fucking brilliant to pair together this idea of depressive emotion and uh, racial performativity. So, (laughs) it's important to remember that this article was written by Jose Esteban Munoz, who was a professor at uh, NYU uh, Tisch School of the Arts, and he mostly focused on performance studies, queer theory, and critical theory, and it's, this essay is like a really big explanation of all of those kind of cross- connections that he creates within his work uh, because he is talking about a performance piece and then looking at it through a critical and theorist and a a critical and queer lens and unfortunately he he passed away in 2013 so this was published uh, in 2009 a couple years before where Obama was president yeah sad day (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he lived in a much more positive. He lived in a better world, world than we do. Simpler now. times, simpler times. <laughs> Is that how we're gonna define things? Like, <laughs> like simpler times. Yeah. Obama's reign was just like <laughs> simpler times. times. Oh my god. Um, the article deals with um, a performance art piece called Neapolitan by Nao Bustamante. Um, she is basically this installation is. Um, this like crochet work around this like little TV that would play her reacting and crying to the end of the movie um, uh, Fresa and Chocolate, Fresa y Chocolate by um, Tomás Gutiérrez Alea, um, and uh, basically it's her reacting to the video and rewinding the end scene and crying and crying and crying. And um, this, the movie that she's watching is about a um, revolutionary and a gay man, uh, and the end of the movie is somewhat homoerotic it, it's mm. it's a it's a very it's supposed to be yeah yeah it's um it's meant to be the happy ending to a very 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 depressing film um so she's watching this rewinding it over and over and over again surrounded by this like crochet work um of kind of homey material if you want to look it up i would definitely suggest looking it up because it yeah. makes a lot more sense once you can like see this we'll for sure put it uh put a, link a link in the description to it. yeah yeah um, but anyway, the idea of this article is that um, Bustamante is portraying this um, sort of depressive state that comes with being brown. And it's more than just like this like temporary feeling of sadness or like white depression. It, it, it's just a state. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's a way of being that you have to like work through and the article is obviously more complex than that and we'll get into it in a little bit more detail later later on but um that's the basic idea of it is dealing with this idea of brownness as a depressive state yeah and how those two things kind of how those two things feed off each other being brown and that downness the quote that we found that basically summarizes um, Munoz's idea of like feeling down feeling brown is describing the depressive position in relation to what I am calling brown feeling chronicles a certain ethics of the self that is utilized and deployed by people of color and other minoritarian subjects who don't feel quite right within the protocols of normative affect and comportment yeah 
in simple speech, it's essential. <laughs> in non-theory speech. Yeah, in, in non... Goddamn, yeah. like, like, reading theory is difficult. Yeah. Blah. This but. this article is especially, like, hard because there's so many fucking little interludes of ideas that he's, like, yeah, like let's explore. Research in order to yeah. understand what he's, like, yeah, no. That's the thing about theory. They, like, throw away these, like, little, like... And such and such and such said this, and, or like throw these big words that are like huge concepts, and just like. Which makes me think, like, it, it always makes me wonder who the fuck is your audience? Like, yeah. um, are you expecting people to get every single thing that you're saying? Because, especially at our level, we're not. We're, we're nowhere near being able to understand every single reference that's happening in an article like this. We are mere creative writing people yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who, who tip our toes into the theory. the theory well just for a good night swim. And feeling like we're smarter than everyone else. <laughs> but with essentially in simple words, <laughs> what he's trying to describe there is the idea that... Brown, this dep- the depressive position that comes along with this brown feeling is an a place of uncomfort and uncomfort discomfort, <laughs> a place of discomfort and disruptive feeling within the norm. The norm being white people. Yeah, the norm being white. And he does point out at one yeah. point, which I think is important, he does say brownness is a mode of attentiveness to the self for others that is cognizant of the way in which it is not and can never be whiteness. And then he does say it is. it should go without saying that some modes of whiteness, for example, working class whiteness, are stigmatized within the majoritarian public sphere. So there, there are different types of whiteness which within that uh, can be defined and are also depressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, yeah, but oppressed. The point well. of it all is that like, white is seen as the default and therefore brown people feel very isolated in that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's not an inclusive way of being able to talk. Um, one of the things that he brings up is the idea of a subaltern in post-colonial theory. Mm-hmm. And a subaltern is somebody who is seen as foreign even in the places they live. Like they, they, they're, they're inferior to the colonial power. Um, and as much as that's a problematic term, it, it's very much a, like, it's a description of the way that white society feels or portrays brown people. They are this, like, even if not subaltern, they're not the default. Like, mm-hmm. they're not the normal. Like, they're always seen as, like, special cases of everything. And, and that's very much post-colonial thinking. And it affects pretty much every society in the world. But, like, in particular, American society in dealing with people of color. Um, the question that comes to mind for me is how, how do we both see this within our daily life like how do we interpret this feeling down feeling brown 
and I'm gonna throw the question onto you first so okay, that cool. I can formulate form- <laughs> my <laughs> own answer. See, the thing is, like, I I'm in a complicated position because I like I do look really fucking white. I I fully acknowledge that. I fully acknowledge that. I, like, while I don't pass for like a white American, I like I pass for white. Like, mm-hmm. I've had people tell me that, like, I look French. Like, I like I obviously do look Hispanic because I am Hispanic. Yeah. But I am a really, really white one. And I also, like, as much as you can act, like... And, and culture is all performativity. I, like, I remember having Mexican friends who were like, you have very American hand gestures. And I never knew what that meant. And mm-hmm. I, I didn't know, like what to think of that like I like I didn't know if I should be like offended or something like that and I, I remember like growing up as a white kid in like Mexico I I always felt really like out of place like I I I, I know that I grew up in Monterey and that I um I went to the same schools as everybody else I like did the same activities I hated soccer which was probably one of the activities that would have made me more popular. But, like, I I grew up in the same life. I grew up in mm-hmm. the same city. We have the same experience. But at the same time, I, I'm always a foreigner. I'm always sort of alien. And in the States, it's the same way. I, I come here, and I know that I look really white. But at the same time, I, I know that I'm not. And, like, being included in these types of activities, especially with my family, who's very, like, weirdly patriotic... I don't know what to feel mm-hmm. about that, and I feel isolated inside, even if I don't look isolated. And at the same time, I do think people perceive a certain foreignness in me. Yeah, like people know upon meeting me that I'm not completely like white. Like I look at least fairly mixed race. You're enough not like, from the cornfields. Like yeah, you're, you're, yeah. <laughs> you're from somewhere else, built uh-huh. of a different kind of stock, um, and being bicultural and also like biracial as much as I really fucking hate that word I like that biculturality is built within me like it's a physical manifestation of like no matter where I go I'm not gonna look like I belong there Mm -hmm. Um, so I I 100% understand this feeling of like feeling other than or like feeling outside of yeah and um while i don't think that i get discriminated against nearly at all um so i don't think that i i don't feel comfortable saying like that i like fully understand like the idea of like feeling down feeling brown like no because there's a certain negativity that comes with being brown that i don't get like I just get the idea of like oh you're not really like a part of us like that that sort of idea like yeah but i I get all of the privilege. The, the type of exclusiveness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, something I was going to mention about... I wanted to ask you, do you th- feel somewhat... Do you think the, the idea of feeling down and feeling brown can be even projected within Latinx communities of just like when you're back in Mexico Mexico? yes absolutely like I like part of being patriotic to Mexico is realizing that we're a bit shit Mm -hmm. and um, we fully acknowledge that we we fully acknowledge that we're not like peak performance as far as like fucking government and like Mm -hmm. money and 
um, everything like that. Because, I don't know, we, we also, like, we're neighbors to America who's such an egomaniac and, like, like honestly, just richer than us. And um, so there's this huge sense of inferiority and, like, we're never going to be good enough, we're never going to be good mm-hmm. enough, we're never going to be good enough. And, and, like, part of the beauty, I think, of Mexican culture is just being like, fuck it, I don't care. Like, I'm happy. I, like have wonderful food we're loud we're great yeah. we're like we have beautiful like architecture and history and like music and culture and, and like who the fuck cares that we're not America and, and I wish that more people would think of it that way I don't, I don't know I like thinking of um, I was a guy that I used to work with while I was a caretaker um, not a huge fan of him it's fine but like I remember that they would talk to me about my family and just be like, why aren't they moving to the States? Why would they ever want to live in Mexico? Why would they ever want to live mm. in Mexico? Why would, like, 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 almost treating them as irresponsible for not moving out of Mexico and moving to the States where they could make more money. Like, I, I know my parents, and I know that money's not the most important thing to them. And they, yeah. like, instilled that in me. And I, like, I, I 100% don't want to do everything yeah, for money. Yeah, that sounds but like a very... They're fucking happy, like... They found a corner of the world where their super low pay gets them to be solidly middle class. Yeah. They have really good friends. They've built really great relationships. They have this, like, really happy, beautiful life in the center of Monterey. And I, like, there's no need to move. There's no need to, like, look for anything better. That perspective makes me think a lot of a particular family member of mine, who I will not name, uh, who... I like I remember having conversations with my grandfather about it as far as like giving up Puerto Ricanness this identity for the capitalistic ventures of Americanism and uh, this idea that one has to rip away the uh, your brownness you have to rip away these things these markers uh, that represent your past so as to further function within the capitalist system of America. And in the case of that family member, he looks very white. He, he has like the, the opportunity to kind of overcome in his eyes the Puerto Ricanness. And that is so frustrating to me because not only because like I'm not super dark, I'm not I'm not a very dark person, but it's obvious that I don't that I'm not American. It's obvious that like I have darker skin, um, but it's it's a thing that I can't rip out, and it's also a thing I can't I don't want to. Um, it's such a representation and important marker of who I am and of how I grew up even though I because I grew up Puerto Rican in the Midwest I have a very strong idea of what it means to be my type of Puerto Rican because I was always constantly uh, living in a world where being Puerto Rican was me and my parents and that was it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there wasn't there wasn't 
there was a bigger idea of what being Puerto Rican was, but I wasn't tapped into it constantly because I wasn't on the island. I wasn't visiting there every like all the time. There there was at a point my own creation of what this identity is. And uh yeah, it it also I wanted to touch on something that you were saying that about um cultural performance and it reminded me a lot of what you and Al were talking about in the episode uh, where you were interviewing Al about the the really interesting part the really interesting idea that because you were part of two cultures you are part of two cultures you can see the flimsiness of gender roles because gender roles are assigned somewhat differently in both cultures and Munoz says uh, the meaning I assigned to the term racial performativity is intended to get an aspect uh, of race that is a doing more precisely I mean a I mean to describe a political doing the effects that the recognition of race belonging coherence and divergence present in the world so this idea that because we have seen two different cultures we can also see kind of the the performance aspect that race has that when you see yourself as part of a particular race you act in a particular way because these are the norms that go along with it but then what happens when you fall into the other category yeah I know that like just thinking about linguistically um, there have been a lot of linguistical research and like I remember Dr. Shapiro from our linguistics class internal linguistics which is about as much as I've taken linguistics um, that's not true I've taken considerable more but like I also didn't pay attention Anyway, but Dr. Shapiro talked about this experiment where um, Japanese Americans were interviewed um, the same questions in English and then in Japanese, and there was a subtle difference in the values of what they said. And I've definitely found myself, when I'm speaking in Spanish, I I have a a very distinctive way of thinking that's very particular to Monterey. And I, I, I think that's part of what frustrates me of people perceiving me as... American is because when I speak in English, I speak in a certain way that's very American. And when I speak in Spanish, I'm very Monterey. And it also bothers me that, like, Americans don't realize that there are different ki- types of Hispanic. Like, yeah. Like, the, like, Monterey is a very, like, it's northern Mexico. We're very close to the States. We also are very industrial and mm-hmm. sort of, um, like, the kind of people who go outside and, like, bright red like permed hair and like leopard print and like five inch heels to like water the fucking garden and like it's it's a very posh sort of mexicanness Mm -hmm. and and a very capitalist um very distinctive sort of mexicanness our accent's also very distinctive like it's just People don't. There hasn't been much American exposure to this type of Mexican. Yeah. Um, and that frustrates me because people will perceive that as like my Americanness. But like, if you go down to Monterey, like I'm very Monterey. <laughs> like, yeah, I very much fit in. As I don't fit in. But like, it's 
It's very particular. For us, there's the added part of uh, our queerness and, like, especially the queerness that we've developed being here. Yeah. Um, Like, not being connected to the Latinx queer community, like, very deep queer community that is happening within our respective, like, home countries uh, where those they're going in at different speeds they're doing very different things but our type of queerness doesn't necessarily um, we don't perform in the same way just even so. like thinking about like since like moving from Truman to here the queer culture is so different and I like having developed as a queer person I think it also has to do with our distance from it like yeah. we we don't necessarily we haven't necessarily found, found a lot of queer people that we connect to yeah. in the same way it as might we be did too early to tell yeah but at the same time like like having developed even just in Truman as a queer person and then moving somewhere else like the queer culture is so different like it's gonna be even more different moving to Mexico or Puerto Rico or like or a big Russia, city here. like yeah Russia where it's like still outlawed yeah. like it, it's gonna be very 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 different but yeah seeing queer culture be so divergent it, it, it's also adds to that biculturalism because like seeing American queer people think that they're the only kinds of queer people to exist mm-hmm. and then seeing the fact that it's like so easily different elsewhere is a really like eye-opening thing and honestly it should be like pretty eye-opening even, even with American like I'm kind of surprised that like even in the states there isn't more of a like awareness of how different queer culture is within different um, like ethnic communities mm-hmm. like thinking about the difference between like like Hey Queen, this like YouTube channel that interviews drag queens, um, that that's very much like the like ah yeah, spill the tea like work and like all that kind of like very white <laughs> um, type of uh, show, as compared to like Big Frida and like that kind of queerness, as compared to like um, Paris is Burning sort of queerness where it it's like a while ago in the like ball scene of, of mm-hmm. like african-american communities and like uh, there's also a few latinx characters in that yeah characters. <laughs> they're actual people <laughs> that's the thing about, like they're actual people um but like it's um it should be more apparent um a- another one that, that's kind of the like paris is burning of like the latinx community is viva dc says viva 16 um a documentary that um talks about the latin american um uh, queer community um, and in particular the like rift between like gay men and gay women mm-hmm. um, it's, it's yeah because very... of the inherent machismo which is yeah like yeah, a, yeah that's very a lot prevalent. of Latinx yeah yeah it, uh, it's really like machismo is just it's, the thing that it's hard to watch down. like I remember the, the clips really that we that we ha- watched of that documentary were really difficult to watch because you could tell that they were almost speaking completely different languages mm-hmm. uh, when they were and, and while I feel like queerness should be a unifying factor not a, a, a like 
it, it shouldn't be a thing to to break up the queer community it should be something that we all hold with pride yeah as minorities like as people who are subalterns quote unquote yeah. it's like we we it's Ooh. difficult it's difficult finding the balance between hegemony and individuality yeah and it, it, it's been an age-old question of like whether or not we should fight to be more united and more as one and like one culture one world one everything as opposed to like the, the, the struggle between hegemony and identity politics I, like to be one to think of ourselves as one world to think of ourselves as uh, one culture one humanity as opposed to identity politics which is very much about like individualism and, and mm-hmm. the like intersectionality of different identities and how it makes us very very different it, it's it's a difficult balance and, and it's a very it's very easy to say uh, like oh we should all just be one we should all just be happy with everything and just like love each other and that's one of the problems that I had with the article yeah is that it, it seems to come to the conclusion that um, like love is the thing that's going to bring us into the like next state of things and I'm not sure if I misread that or not to be honest but I like I'm very skeptical of that idea because just thinking about like cultural appropriation Iggy Azalea loves black culture yeah (laughs) and like has a lot of that in her like videos and her like like just her music in general but it's not a kind of love that is appreciated by black people and just thinking of like white people who like throw like Cinco de Mayo parties or like like um talk about like oh I love your culture I love your music like it would be just like like I just like I feel like I'm like a Latina inside, and it's just like that, like that, like yeah. you can love our culture as much as you like, but it's the first step to something that needs to happen that's a little bit bigger than the, that. The thing that also bothers me right now is uh, people talking about spirit animals, yeah, like the, the like ripping that's Native American, culture. yeah, ripping that away from Native American culture and seeing it on fucking BuzzFeed articles of uh, seventeen reasons why Jennifer Lawrence is your spirit animal and like. The, uh, things like that of uh, it, there there is an interesting sentiment of wanting that but then taking it and just like making it your own especially when it, it's this white version of it, it mm-hmm. uh, it's like Taco Bell yeah yeah it's type of thing yeah, yeah. it's ah uh, uh, like, Even though I still love eating me some Taco Bell. <laughs> same, honestly. I like... It's cheap. It's if more, it was any it's more, more expensive, the cheapness and the greasiness yeah, for than, sure. than anything else. It's just else. shitty and it's lovely. Um, but as much as I do think that love is an integral part of um, being able to reconcile this, like, feeling down, feeling brown, it... I want to be idealistic. But the reality of the situation is that so much harm has been done that it's not the kind of thing that can just be fixed with love. Like, love is, like, the first step of, like, like being an ally, being somebody who's, like, okay with queer people or, like, yeah. okay with, like, Latinx people or black people or, like, Asian people or, like, any... Like, it's just, like... It's a first step. I didn't see... Um his conclusion being that much about love uh 
Here's a quote from the last paragraph, which is, Reparation is part of the depressive position. It signals a certain kind of hope. The depressive position is a tolerance of the loss and guilt that underlies the subject's sense of self, which is to say that it does not avoid or wish away loss and guilt. It is a position in which the subject negotiates reality, resisting the instinct to fall into the delusional realm of the paranoid schizoid. So, plain speak, being that uh, there, there is, uh, he is talking about a type of hope, a type of thing, um, but it's not about love kind of conquering thing. it, conquering the yeah. depressive emotion, but better understanding this depressive emotion and uh, how it works with reality instead of its disconnection. So, so love is a sort of hope, not like a like end all meet all. That yeah. makes mo- a lot more sense in my mind. Yeah, I like. I don't know. The, the thing is that like he seemed to have come to this conclusion like a couple of like paragraphs before the end of the article, and then I was kind of lost by the rest because it was like disparaged yeah. like he, paragraphs that don't really have anything to do with the period, like the one before. As as I was reading this article again, the end, the last few pages make a lot more sense. In the sense of he is setting, like, he, at the beginning of the article, he sets up uh, Bustamante's uh, piece of work. And then he goes on a really long rant of what it means to be feeling brown and then feeling down. And then he comes back to her piece of work and how it fits within this type of performance art, which is trying to show the depressive motion of crying and of tears and doing the physical aspects of it. And he mentions the work of art by Baz John Otter called um, I Am Too Sad to Tell You, which is this video of a guy essentially crying um, and he's a white guy. Then there's also the Maria Abramovic's video called The Onion where she's eating an onion and crying at the same time because of it. And I believe... I believe she's Russian. I, she, still she looks very white, and her her idea of the onion is more of a domestic play of uh, this type of sadness. And what he's trying to link in those, in showing those pieces of art compared to Bustamante's art is something that came much earlier in the article of the difference between um, brown sadness and white sadness and how it it's not about what race is but how like what race does mm-hmm. in in the performance of this sadness and that that kind of connects me to uh, I'm gonna read this short some excerpts of an introduction to this book of poetry called Sad Girl Poems by Christopher Soto, also known as Loma. And they 
they put this in a way that I wish I had to come up with. Like, I love this so much because I I feel this so hard. So the first part is, uh, I'll read the first excerpt. I always wanted to be a sad white girl. I wanted to be sad like Lana Del Rey. I wanted a sadness so universal it'd move everyone to tears. A sadness everyone could relate to. I want a summertime, summertime sadness. Yes. I've experienced that before. I know where that's coming from. Lately, I've been thinking about the contextualization of people of color sadness. My sadness is viewed in terms of everything surrounding it. My sadness is about domestic violence, homelessness, gender dysphoria, intergenerational trauma passed down from the Salvadorian uh, civil war, etc., etc. My sadness is something to observe, consume, sympathize, but not empathize with, not to immobilize for. Most people do not know how to interact with my sadness. My sadness is so multifaceted, it speaks 20 languages. So. I th and it links to that idea that Munoz is saying uh, at the end of the article where Boz Vaughn, like the, that piece called I'm Too Sad to Tell You will get a particular response to it because it is a white type of sadness, a white male type of sadness that is seen as universal, while Bustamante's brown, uh, feeling down, feeling brown is is more complicated yeah so and a lot more pervasive it seems because it's about an external inalterable factor i think the interesting thing about like bustamante's piece is that it's it's sort of bittersweet like she's crying and she's clearly sad but she's watching this part of the film that is like happy Mm -hmm. and and sort of a resolution so so it's a it's a hopeful sort of crying which is kind of it's a really t sad type though yeah a little bit yeah but i feel like that's kind of maybe emblematic of a very particular sort of depression mm -hmm. um a, a sort of like hopelessness but also hopefulness of the situation because it's not like the situation for brown people is going to get much better very quickly. But at the yeah. same time, like, there's a beauty to being brown that you don't have to, like, I, I, I don't know. It, it's, not, it's not a thing to be sad about intrinsically. Mm -hmm. So there's no reason to be sad about it. But yet the world is so shitty about it that you have to be sad about it. But it's not a reason to be sad about. Like it's like it, yeah. it's this really complex. Like why are we this way? Why do we do this? Why do we like? Why do we have to do like what the fuck? Like sort of a really easy kind of cop out answer to that. I think is capitalism. Like the like even Munoz says that in the very beginning of this of depression is now seen as a, almost a capitalistic endeavor uh, through the way that we produce art that is about this depression and trying to describe this depression. Christopher Soto's idea of Lana Del Rey's uh, very understandable. Yeah, uh, like, summertime, summertime, yeah, summertime. like that sad girl sadness that is 
permeable marketable. and marketable. Um, while also there's this interesting idea of pharmaceuticals, which are supposed to help cure this depressive mood and uh, how we continuously feed into um especially in the past like 10 years it's gotten way way crazier uh, how many people are actually getting prescriptions for antidepressants and and stuff like that mm-hmm. anti anti anxiety medicine also but yeah yeah i think there's something to be said also about like the depression that comes from anti normativity Mm-hmm. It like just the depression that comes from being different, um, and one of the things that I think being like brown in a mostly white place brings is this sense of like I'm already anti-normal or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, what else is normal that I can call bullshit on? Yeah. What you were saying earlier about being here and then being back in Mexico speaks a lot to how I feel about being here and then being back in Puerto Rico where even in Puerto Rico when I was a kid I never felt super there like I never felt like I felt Puerto Rican and everything but there was always something off which I assume was just like my queerness my dysphoria and everything and the way I acted was different uh, like I I remember crying a lot and like I, I remember being a kid who who was very emotional and very uh, in tune with with uh, even back then I think in some sense empathy and like uh, when I saw someone being sad I was there for them like I felt the same thing I was just really selfish I would cry when my parents were like hey, no, like to pick me up <laughs> That's fine. But I also did that too. Yeah. Like there there I wasn't a perfect little child. Yeah. But but I remember that being a really big thing in me and being kind of made fun of for crying. Like I remember I cried at my birthday party when I was uh, like it's my five birthday. or six. I can cry but but for me it was I I can still tap into that emotion really strongly, which I try not to because it it's really bittersweet of this idea that it's supposed to be a day that I'm having fun, but I'm not having fun, and it's a thing that still happens to me, and it's a it's a clear kind of sign, at least in my brain, that uh, I was always kind of sad and brown, like even in a place where brownness was the norm um but also brownness is so complicated within um within puerto rican culture because we are this mishmash of um me- of mexicans nah <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're them we're a mishmash of spanish and other type of colonizers mostly just spanish um black uh slaves and then Americans to some extent. Uh, the Americans who have moved to Puerto Rico, which isn't a huge population, but there is one. And this kind of mixing of, of people has made it super hard to understand our singular identity because we 
we want to as Puerto Ricans we want to tie ourselves to the Taino to the the uh, native uh, people of that island and we still call like the island Boricua which is or Borican which is the the name of the island that the native people gave it but there's very little of that in our blood anymore like it's we've been fucking raped and like attacked from all these different sides to the point that that no longer is a essentially a genetic part of us um and when i was in puerto rico this summer we went to try to visit this statue this enormous statue like i'm i'm talking about like it felt like 350 feet tall of Christopher Columbus. And they they wanted to put this statue, like, in San Juan where the ports are and so that, like, people coming into the island on cruise ships and everything could see this uh, statue. And then, unfortunately, like, there wasn't the money for it there, but some other town had it, so now it, it's, like... You can still see it from the ocean, but not from that. It's in the northern side of Puerto Rico, I think. And it's really fucked up in the sense of we are the we are colonized people Worshiping who have been continuously colonized to the point that we worship, in some senses, the person who started it all. And... And I talked to, like, my dad about this and how, like, twisted I felt about it. And he was like, but the thing is, if you hate the Spanish part of us, in us, then you're hating a very essential part of us. And I looked at him and I was just like, yeah, I'm good at that already. Like, that's already a skill that my self-hatred has made me strong at. So, so the idea that, like, especially me, like, I can live with that com- complex paradox of, of being fucked up by, by, by this continuous motion of Puerto Ricanness. Um, I don't know where I was going with that, but back when I go back to Puerto Rico, I don't feel more or less Puerto Rican than I feel here. Like, I, I might feel even less Puerto Rican because I, I'm seen as this person who has lived outside of Puerto Rico for so long that they are no longer as connected to the culture. They don't get the in-jokes. They don't get the, the little aspects of our life anymore. But then when I come back here, there's that continuous feeling of I don't look like what a normal person looks like here but i also don't look like what a normal person looks like in puerto rico my long hair the way i dress nothing matches up so so this feeling that's why like i feel feeling down feeling brown could be tattooed on my body and i would never feel like it was a bad statement or something that did not work because it works in every aspect one of the things that I, I remember thinking was like I in the interview with Al was that I 
I remember feeling so weird just for being bicultural that a lot of the like weirdness that I felt inside that could be assigned to being queer, I just attributed to like, oh, I'm just not from here, sort of. Like I like I don't super belong here. Mm-hmm. So a lot of like while I was more aware of social constructs and like the fact that like gender is kind of bullshit and laws are kind of bullshit and like governments are kind of bullshit and nations are kind of bullshit and patriotism is kind of bullshit and like personality in a sense is kind of bullshit like Mm -hmm. it's um it kind of hid the fact that i was queer for a really long time because i just assumed that i was weird because of that and now figuring out this like additional like anti-normativity within me is like opening up like oh oh it wasn't just because i'm half american half mexican like i like i'm also queer like Mm -hmm. i'm non-binary and mostly in the guys and that's not a thing that was normal where i'm from i literally did not know anybody who was like that growing up like i just yeah yeah there's no one that i can think of that is that i know that like i can think of when i'm thinking of puerto rican genderqueer like that doesn't really exist in my in my vision, yeah, which, same. And I know that there so, are, yeah, but it's it's I not to say that I could they're find gone. Like, yeah, yeah, they exist, but we're disconnected from that. There was an odd moment when I visited Monterey this last time with my friend um, Lydia, uh, where we went through the like facultad, the like University mm-hmm. of um, Nuevo León, uh, the state that I live in, and um, we went to this like. We went to the faculty of like arts and letters, and um, the like. Each of the different places has a different mascot, and the mascot for arts and letters is a fucking unicorn. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, holy shit, I would have been here. And like, Lydia walks around and is like, oh yeah, this is like the gay stoner like area. And I'm just like, holy shit, I could have been a part of something. Like I like, yeah, I missed out on being a part of one of the gay stoners, and like. I, there was a place for me, and I just didn't realize that it existed. And that's a part of it. Like, that, that's part of what, like, leaving, like, your, like, hometown or whatever before you fully realize your queerness does to you. And, and I wish that I could have developed a little younger and figured that shit out and, and like, not have this, like, skewed perspective of, like, how unqueer or, like, how there's yeah. only, like, gay guys in, like... Mexico, because I know that's not true, and I know there's a gay stoner faculty, like, somewhere that has a fucking unicorn as a, like, mascot. Like, mm-hmm. how gay is that? Like, I... I wish that I could have more perspective than I do, even. And I think that's part of what being bicultural gives you, is that you realize how fucking blind you are, mm-hmm. and wish that you could have more. Because you're always less in the know than everybody else. You always aren't going to get jokes. You always aren't going to get, like, certain things that people who are, like the norm or whatever are gonna feel that they're a part of and that's a human thing like not everybody's gonna get every reference ever like it's it just is accentuated by feeling like an outsider yeah and I think that's also why we're in the position of being able to call out that bullshit and and the need of being just like hey you you need to realize that there's more out there that your that your footing's always wrong and my footing's always wrong too so like we can all be stumbling around <laughs> together yeah. because there's 
It's just so... Yeah, I just... I also wish that I had been able to have some f- deeper connection with, like, the queer community yeah. in Puerto Rico. I wanted to read one more little section of uh, Christopher Soto's introduction. A brown boy gets shot by a white cop. A brown boy writes poems about his own death. A white man buys and sells the stories from this brown boy. The brown boy sits at white feet and waits for a paycheck. The brown boy gets paid for narrating his own death to white people. I won't write narrative poems for white people. I won't write narrative poems for white people. I won't write narrative poems for white people. I won't allow my narrative, my hurt, my sadness, and my life to be bought, sold, consumed, and shot out, and never actually addressed. I won't allow it. I'm such a hypocrite. Munoz says, I would argue that feeling brown, feeling down, is an ethical position within the social for the minoritarian subject. And my immediate question to that was, how is it an ethical position? How is this idea an ethical position for, the minor- for someone within a minority? Is it, is it possible to, to be in the minority and not feel this way? Or at least not express it to a point that that I think maybe Munoz and other people would point at as being feeling brown, feeling down. I I think that it might be an ethical position, but it's something that happened that is. It exists in every moment in which we as Latinx people or other people of different races are within a context, a situation that's happening, and they feel torn out of that situation as far as how they can communicate within it. So the idea of when I'm around a lot of white people talking about something as simple as Starbucks, something in which I don't have any actual like deep experience or interest in and and have very little way for me to talk about it and to engage within that conversation so i i don't know if it is an ethical position i don't know how to make it an ethical position i like it might be things that I think is really interesting is like one of the big differences that I notice when I go back to my Mexican family is that they don't feel this like SJW pressure that I do. Mm-hmm. Like I like they just kind of live like they, they don't. Yeah, I don't know. I, I as much as I can make the narrative that like brown people are miserable and like they live happy lives. Like it's 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 not like the kiss of death to be brown. Um, and sometimes it's difficult finding that balance of like, yeah, there's repression, hundred percent, hundred percent. Like Mexican government is awful. The American government is awful. Like like government in general is awful. The idea of nation is awful. Like the like 
horrible social injustice that goes on is awful. The violence, the like, the evil deeds that go unpunished or punished, and like the evil, like the consequences are still there, and you still have to fucking deal with them. Like it's like if one thing, if I learn one thing from living through the drug wars is that you run out of fear, and you run out of like I don't know, just feelings and it might be a depression of just like like not feeling anything like mm-hmm. that sort of like just kind of emptiness um but it's also kind of a like y- you find graveyard humor and like gallows humor i think is the word that i was looking for but like, like you found you find gallows humor in whatever and, and i think that's a very hopeful idea and that's part of the importance of like the month is like the, the movie that she's watching ending happily even though the the like whole thing was really really depressing it creates this bittersweet like yeah the world sucks and everything's shitty and not everything's shitty but like like people are really fucking shitty to each other and it's kind of an irreparable thing now because like love isn't gonna cut it like there's been so much damage that time and love and affection and admiration aren't gonna heal they just aren't but at the same time there's gay guys kissing and that's mm-hmm. cute and like he just like the world's shitty but stars are pretty and yeah. like I don't know I, I, I don't understand what he means by ethical position yeah I really genuinely don't like is it like a pressure to be I, brown and to like protest everything or like I think it, just... it, it has to do with uh, the ethical position of fighting for against it of fighting against the the norm, um, the oppressive norm, because like you were saying, you can be in a Latin American country and be very happy with your existence, but I think it also has to do with the idea that you may not be the minority in in that in that place. You That's uh, you're within capitalism, you are a minority. Don't don't like yeah. there's a lot of issues with that yeah but But, mexico mexicans are a minority yeah there are mexicans who are minorities in mexico the same way that there are puerto ricans in puerto rico that are minorities there so and the same thing that he said earlier about there being different types of whiteness different types of brownness but when we're thinking of it kind of in the big in the scheme of here in the united states brownness fighting against it that's the ethical position Uh, knowing that within you you do have that feeling down and feeling brown aspect and then deciding to do like what Bustamante did of um, expressing it in such a way that shows this repetition of um of this emotion but the the want of never letting go of how hard that bittersweet moment is at the end of that movie that that is what kind of inspires it doesn't her rewatching it over and over again isn't the inspiring part i think the inspiring part is what we can take away from it and do something about it um and it, it goes back, I think it always fucking goes back to empathy. 
to the idea that empathy is kind of the first step towards revolutionary action because you are able to in some way connect to the the other mindset and it isn't it isn't to say that you understand every single aspect of it because unfortunately I will never understand like white girl sadness. White girls will never understand my type of sadness. White girls will never understand but, each other's type of sadness. Yeah, like yeah. So so, but there's reaching over and being a part of it and acting from it. Empathy is where that action gets its fuel, and we can actually revolt or fight against uh, those actions. I'm down. And I'm brown. And, and this, this has been, been the They Them, Them Podcast. Podcast.